are continuing through our series through the letter of 2 Timothy. Remember, this is Paul writing to his protege Timothy about what matters most in the faith, what matters most in ministry. We didn't really try for this to happen, but with so many people taking these first steps of obedience in the faith, we are actually covering the section where Paul talks about the keys to persevering in the faith in the midst of a fallen world, in the midst of an abundance of false teaching. So I'm not saying that to alarm those who are being baptized. I am confident of Philippians 1.6 for you, for those who are truly in Christ, that he who started a good work in you will surely bring it into completion. But what I hope this text accomplishes this morning is that I hope that for those who have this anxiety, this worry about persevering in the faith, that they would find grace and comfort in God's power to keep them in that faith. On the other side of that coin, for those of us, there's always some of us in here that have taken their foot off the gas for a long time, that this text would serve as a a wake-up call to you to own your personal responsibility and pursue Christ with your life. So So let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 14 through 26. So let's remember the overall context here. So Paul is sitting in his prison cell awaiting his uh, execution. And so just imagine if you're on your deathbed and you want to give your last words to your kids, your grandkids, like what you're going to say. You're going to say what matters most in life. This is what Paul is doing to Timothy. And let's remember the previous context, what we covered last week in verses 1 through 13. Trace covered how the key to faithfulness in our mission was relying on the grace of God, relying on the gospel, and on the strength that God provides for us since we are inadequate. So that's so let's pray, and then we're going to comb through the text this morning. Father, we come to you humbled, Lord, and, and what a glorious gospel we stand, that we are righteous in Christ that we have been adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High King. I pray that we would stand in in submission to your word, that it would be a mirror to our hearts, God, of where we're falling short, and that you would grant us the power to repent and to continue to pursue after you and be made more mature and complete in Christ. And God, I, I pray that Jesus would be beautiful this morning. In your precious name, amen. So let's go ahead and start off in verse 14. So Paul starts off, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. So he starts off from the top there, remind them of these things. And what are these things in which Paul is charging Timothy to remind his congregation of? Let's go to verses 8 through 13. Let's kind of do a little recap of what we covered Uh, last week. So he says in the previous section, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, We will also live with him. Probably a couple more verses there. That's okay. 
If we endure with him, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. So I'm not going to take a whole lot of time of breaking down these verses because Trace did that last week. But Paul is charging Timothy to remind his congregation about who Jesus is and what he has done for them and why he is worthy of enduring through persecution. To remind them of the glorious eternal hope that they have in the gospel. Think about it. When we are focusing on the gospel and the death of Christ and what that has accomplished for us, when we're focusing on the gospel as individuals and as a congregation on a whole, what does this do to our perspective in life? Suddenly, when we are focusing on the main thing, all of a sudden arguments about way less important issues seem petty. This is exactly what Timothy was apparently facing. Let's kind of recap the rest of that verse 14. Can we put it up on there, Chase? That's the first principle. Let's do verse 14. So, and do not quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins So we don't know exactly what Timothy's congregation was quarreling about, but we do know that their argument was trivial and their teaching really wasn't edifying the congregation. It wasn't for the purpose of godliness. And when individuals or a congregation is quarreling about things that don't matter, that's when they often swerve from the faith instead of persevering in Christ. So how do we combat this? I want to suggest my first principle this morning, that those who persevere are focused on the gospel. We've taken notes. This is the first principle. So I once uh, was at a church, and this was a few years ago, where uh, we had a certain population within the congregation that was like trying to create a mutiny on Sunday mornings. So they did not like the fact that we had drums for Sunday morning worship service. And so what they started doing is that they started protesting by not showing up to the first part of the worship service to, to challenge the pastor and to, to, to create this conflict within this church. Luckily, we had a wise pastor at the time that created a compromise by bringing in a cone to the church, what we have there in the back, the little drum here. But I'm just trying to think through that situation. What if that little population was focusing on who they were in Christ, what he has done for them, and, and the glorious hope that they have in the gospel. They most definitely would not have responded with so much dissension and conflict over something that doesn't matter. Now this is an extreme example. Let's, let's dive more into our reality here. Based on where we're meeting here in a school, I'm going to guess that we're not so crazy about our radical personal preferences, right? But what this church was doing here is that they were guilty of making minor things into the main thing, or, or even good things in the Bible into the main thing. And it was driving them into dissension, driving them into conflict. So as you're kind of thinking through this in your own life, have you elevated any of your opinions or even good things from the Bible to be the main thing and drive of your life rather than the gospel? Persevere in a world full of distractions. We must focus on resolving to keep the main thing the main thing. Let's move on to verses 15 through 18. 
So do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be shamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. So here in this section, Paul is contrasting between Timothy and the false teachers. And, and notice in verse 15 what his like main litmus test in God's eyes between a faithful and a faithless worker was whether or not they rightly handled the word of God. Whether or not they were teaching God's word the way God intended it. And then in verses 17 through, 17 through 18, Paul names these false teachers and he, 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 he gives a clue in what they're talking about in verse 16 about irreverent babble. So apparently these false teachers were, were teaching that Christ has already been, or that they, believers, have already been resurrected. So in other words, they're teaching that they were already in heaven. That they have already had this, this post-resurrected state in their body, that they were without sin and, and they, were, they, were, they could do no wrong. And this, of course, was a huge error. But like most, most false teaching, uh, it seems plausible on the surface. And that's why you see in that verse in 18, the congregation was affected. That some of them, uh, at this false teaching, had been spreading like this disease. So, of course, not much has changed almost 2,000 year, years later that we find ourselves in the church so false teaching is still abundant and still is spreading like this disease. And I can think of these nice young men that, that ride around their bikes with their helmet and they have the, the slacks and the button-up shirt and they have the name tag saying elder so-and-so. They call themselves Latter-day Saints and they really use the same vocabulary we do, the same words, and yet they give radically different definitions to those words. And they end up proclaiming a radically different gospel than we hold to. But what about the pastor who has all these book deals. He has these, these big churches. And what he's doing is he's, he's preaching, he's quoting these Old Testament passages of great blessing and riches. And he's misapplying them to the age of the church and saying that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. And that if you're not, you're not experiencing God's blessing. Ultimately what they're saying sounds plausible, right? They're quoting from the Bible. But when you get beneath the surface, they are preaching a radically different gospel contrary to God's word. So what's the key to persevering in the midst of an abundance of false teaching? My second principle is those who persevere rightly handle the Bible. Remember the original context here. Paul is writing to Timothy, who is an elder of the church. And so the direct application here is, is charging Timothy to rightly handle the word of God, to be cautious how he teaches God's word. And, and because of that, these are the very words of God that we don't want to rush into how we're teaching. And that's why myself and the other elders, we, we spend hours and hours and hours in sermon preparation so that we can rightly handle the word of God. But the implication goes far greater than just Paul writing and applying to pastors. You see, I believe all of us to some degree are called to teach the word of God. I don't believe all of us should have these, these official teaching positions within the church, but all of us right, are called to make disciples. 
All of us are called to train up our children in the Lord. Not the youth pastor or the children's minister, that though they can help. And I'm sure all of us have informally counseled someone else, right, through Bible verses. And that is, that is a teaching ministry of the word. We want to make sure we're being careful that we're not taking verses out of context. We're not applying foreign meanings into what we're teaching. But yet another implication of this principle is that in order to rightly handle the Bible, rightly handle the Word of God, we must know the Bible. We live in a day and age where we have all these apps, all these resources, and, and there's all these opportunities to dig into the Word of God, to study God's Word, and yet we still live in an age of great biblical illiteracy. And all this is happening here while we have brothers and sisters in Christ who are in persecuted nations that are lucky to have a whole Bible per their congregation. This is not to, to guilt us into doing this, but to, to wake us up that, hey, we have a great opportunity to know God's word. Let's take advantage of these resources. Let's study God's word. Let's know it so that we can rightly handle it. And then when we come across false teaching, we can be able to identify it and persevere instead of swerving off from the faith. Let's move on to verse 19. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. Lord knows those who are his. We're going to stop there. Lord knows those who are his. So in the midst of false teachers leading people astray, we come to this like, fresh pool of God's grace. And even though false teachers are coming up and their teaching is spreading, Paul makes the declaration that, Paul, that God's plans are not thwarted, that Christ has accomplished salvation for the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Church, this should comfort our souls because in the midst of seeing people swerve away from the faith, Paul says that the church's hope and ultimately persevering is in the God who has chosen us, and the God who preserves us in Christ. That God's firm foundation stands. His chosen people, his church stands. Remember a couple months ago, I read an article about a pastor I had known well, or I had known about well, and listened to all his sermons, read his books, and then all of a sudden announced on Instagram that he was no longer a Christian. And uh, I remember that... Talk to my wife. That affected me. I, was, I could barely sleep that night. This is a guy that I deeply admired and respected. And then for him to say that, that alarmed me. Because it's like, if that can happen to that guy who is preaching Christ, is making Jesus beautiful, and, 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 and holding to his convictions, that can happen to that guy, it can happen to me. And so after a time, I... I, I guess it is helpful to examine yourself too, but I moved on from looking and focusing on myself so much to looking at and trusting in the one God who is able to keep me in the faith. And I think when we're talking about whether or not we can lose our salvation, I agree with Charles Spurgeon who says, if it was on me, to keep my salvation, I would have lost it long ago. So I, 
ultimately, for all those who have truly put their, their faith in Christ, the Bible gives a lot of clear evidence that God is the one who enables us to persevere to the end. So you may be thinking about, all right, what about this pastor, this guy who was solid, holding these convictions, and he shipwrecked his faith? Or maybe we know people in our lives who seemed like they were loving Jesus, and then all of a sudden something happened, and they were no longer following Christ. What are we to do about that? I think one answer is to say that these people are still truly in Christ and, and that maybe 5, 10 years, 20 years down the road that God will enable them to come back into the fold and, and they'll be restored. But another answer we can give, another explanation we can give to this is I believe found in 1 John 2.19. Do we have that up there? We do. 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us, this is talking about false teachers, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For they, if they had been of us, they would, have been, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So you can be walking in the faith and yet shipwreck your faith, swerve from the faith. And you can deceive people that you're in the faith, but if you're, you swerve from the faith, that can show that you were never of Christ in the first place. So those who are truly in Christ persevere. So Philippians 1.6 says, And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That he who began a good work in you will, not may, notice, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Let's put up Romans 8.29-30. through 30. For all those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And for all whom he predestined, he also called. All those whom he called, he also justified. And all those whom he justified, he also glorified. We're not going to get into the whole predestination thing here, but, but notice whom he called, he also justified, declared righteous, right with God. When we put our faith in Christ, we are justified. And all those whom are justified will be glorified. Enter this state of being with God where their souls, their bodies are transformed. They get to enjoy God forever. All, not some. This leads us to our third principle this morning. That those who persevere embrace God's power to keep them. So I want to address a certain you know, population of people here, maybe a few, maybe, maybe a lot, but I've counseled a lot of these people in the years past. This type of person is constantly worrying about whether or not they are saved or not, or whether or not they might somehow lose that salvation or, or give into false teaching. And when you kind of talk about the scale of like God's sovereignty, his control and personal responsibility, they're like tipping at 90% personal responsibility. All the burden is on themselves. And because of that, they're burnt out. Because of that, they're exhausted and having this burden of persevering all on themselves. If you are that person this morning, please, I urge you, jump into that fresh pool of God's grace and that truth of the God who is able to keep you in the faith. Jude 24 says... Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. 
So God wants that burden you are holding on to. And your only job is to simply abide in Christ. And God will bear fruit through you in that. Let's move on to that. This beautiful paradox we want to see in verse 19 again. Can we put up verse 19? So we see God's firm foundation stands. The Lord knows who are his. And we get to the second half of that verse. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So in verse 19, we see this tension. God's firm foundation. His church will stand through false teaching, implying that he keeps them through it. Yet the second half of the verse reveals this complicated relationship between God's sovereignty, his control, and our personal responsibility. Those who are part of God's people whom he keeps, they have the responsibility to depart from sin. And then verses 20 through 26 looks to amplify this principle, gives us this illustration that gives us concrete evidence in what this looks like in life. So let's put up verses 20 through 21. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So we see in these verses, Paul makes it clear to Timothy that not only is he responsible to rightly handle the word of God, but he's responsible to part from sin in order to persevere in a fallen world. That he's to pursue being a vessel for honorable use. And then he gives us concrete evidence of what that looks like in verses 22 to 26. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So we see in verse 22, flee youthful passions. In the Greek, it's, it's rendered this sinful craving or lust or forbidden, or forbidden desire. So flee from all this and pursue Christ who will produce all these things, right, righteousness, faith, love, and peace. So turn from sin and pursue Christ along with the church. And Paul ends the section and talks about the character necessary to be a leader in the church the leader of the church must not be divisive. He must be kind. He must be able to teach. He must be patient and gentle. Because ultimately, we end with this hope in this passage. That even false teachers are not beyond the grace of God. His reach for them to be brought back into the church. Now what I want to key in on here in this section is Paul's charge to Timothy that in order to persevere, he must own his personal responsibility to depart from evil and pursue Christ. Let's put up our fourth principle this morning. Those who persevere own their personal responsibility. So those who persevere through a fallen world own the fact that they are responsible to depart from sin and put Christ first in their lives. And if you've been taking notes, you may think, man, 
points three and four seem to contradict each other? Is it the fact that God is, in the, one, is, is the one who is in control and keeps us in our faith, or are we the ones who are responsible for pursuing Christ to persevere? And the answer is yes. So how, do, how are we to resolve these apparent truths in the Bible? And I believe the answer is that we don't. Charles Spurgeon said, he was once asked on how he could reconcile these issues, and he responded by saying that he has no desire to reconcile friends. He's talking about divine sovereignty and personal responsibility. And I think Philippians 2, 12 through 13 gives us a good window into these truths. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we are to work out our salvation, and yet it is God who works in us. These paradox of truths, but scripture teaches both. And as I revealed earlier, many of us don't balance these two truths well. We're either leaning all the way on the other side of personal responsibility, or we're leaning all the way on the other side of divine sovereignty. And so I want to speak to the population here who is functionally not living out their personal responsibility in their pursuit of Christ. Doing Marine Corps ministry on base for years, I've met way too many of these people to count. And they all kind of have like a similar story. They maybe asked Jesus in their heart when they were six and and they, they, they got baptized shortly afterward and, and maybe they, they went to church as a family every week. Maybe they didn't. But you may find yourself at this point sitting in this congregation. You're thinking to yourself, my life really looks nothing like Jesus. Your life isn't marked by a pattern of obedience to God's word, which is a marker that you're in Christ. The fruit of the Spirit is, is absent in your life. There's no semblance of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, and, and so on. And to be honest, if God didn't exist, your life really wouldn't look a whole lot different other than maybe coming to church on Sundays. If that's you this morning. I, I want to say this with love. I hope you wake up. My counsel to you would, would not be to comfort you in the God who can keep you to persevere because that may be giving you false assurance that you belong to Christ in the first place. Because those who belong to Christ, they do not give themselves over to this indifference about following him. Instead, there is a pattern in their life in which they're being, being obedient to God's word. They're they are loving others and they're exhibiting the behavior, the fruit of those who have the Holy Spirit. Now, this is the standard here is not perfection by any means. Is that if that was the case, salvation would no longer be by grace, okay? But there's there's an evidence, there's a pattern in these areas to exhibit the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? So scripture calls us to personal responsibility, and scripture also calls us to examine ourselves if we truly belong to Jesus. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5 says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? 
Now, I, I want to concede that maybe you think I'm talking about you, and, and it can be absolutely possible that you are in Christ. 1 Corinthians is a letter for a reason, okay? This is a church that was messed up, and yet Paul declares all these truths about them in Christ. But even so, we're called to wake up and own our personal responsibility. So put your foot back on the gas if that's you. Now, I may be talking to another population here who has maybe grown up in church their whole life and yet has never really understood the gospel. That they're still relying on their own merits, their own works to earn the favor of God. Maybe there's a population here that you maybe know the gospel, you can articulate the gospel, but all the gospel is to you is this series of like propositional truths that you can like intellectually assent to, but there's no ownership of sin. You don't see your sin. You don't see your, your need, and you're not trusting in a Savior to make you right with God. Either way, wherever you are at, please wake up this morning. I want to end here. How am I doing on time? Okay, a little long. I've been following along. Paul's been seeking to Timothy about the keys to persevering in the faith within a fallen world and within an environment of false teaching. I want to give a closing challenge before we end here this morning. If I can just boil this down to like one closing application, the so what of the passage, I want to challenge you to keep your eye on the prize. Paul sums this challenge up well in Philippians 3.14. I press on toward the goal for the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So churches, we are beholding as we are treasuring and loving Jesus as he himself is that prize for us. This will keep us from veering off in distractions. This will hold us accountable knowing that one day we will have to give an account of how we handle the word of God. And this will keep us from veering off into sin and a hardened heart. But we must keep Jesus as our prize. Amen? I, uh, even at my comparatively young age, and I don't know how old you guys think I am, but uh, I have a four-month-old daughter, and I just can't believe how fast life is passing me by. I can't believe how fast my, my little girl is growing up. And I know we just had dinner with a, a couple that's about 20 years older than us. And, and they're getting ready to have that talk with the daughter's boyfriend about having her hand in marriage. And I know I'm going to blink and I'm going to be walking my little girl down the aisle. And I'm going to blink again and I'm going to find myself in the last chapter of my life, right? Life goes by that fast. And when I'm there, I know all of a sudden things and aspirations which seem so important to me right now will suddenly utterly pale in comparison as I await my eternal calling. That's my hope for all of us here, that we should long to hear these words from our Savior as we see him face to face. Well done, good and faithful servant. Well, we must keep Jesus as our prize. Now, for the unbeliever here, I also want to urge you to think through the brevity of life. Jesus says in Luke 9, 23-24, that whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? 
So with life going by so fast, what would it profit you? If you attained every single ambition, everything you, 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 you sought out to do, if you realized every single dream you ever had in this life, and then you died utterly separated from God in your sin. Jesus is calling you not to waste your life. Instead, he calls you to give your life, to give up control of your life to him, to turn from your sin, surrender your life by placing your trust in Christ. For what In Christ is the person, what he has done for you to make you right with God. That's you this morning. I encourage you, please come talk to me or one of the elders. We're going to have people at the end to counsel. We would love to talk to you what it looks like to follow Jesus, but don't waste your life. I'll close here. Christ, church, is the most worthy treasure and prize, not only in this world, but in the eternity that awaits us. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, how we need our perspective to change. How we need to have our eyes elevated from the temporal to the eternal. How we need to live in light of eternity. To help us see all these trivial things that we worry about don't really matter. And Father, I I pray that as we are keeping our eyes on you, that that would keep us from swerving into things that don't matter. God, that as we are looking to you, the author and finisher of our faith, that we would trust in your power to keep us in you. You are able and you will do so. At the same time, would our love for you, Jesus, spur us on toward our personal responsibility to pursue you with every area of our life, knowing that you are the greatest treasure in this life. I pray for those who don't know you, that you would reveal to them how beautiful and how worthy you are, God. We pray all these things in your precious name. Amen.